back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today is our producer and friend, Hugo Lindgren. And uh, Hugo and I are going to talk about a couple of different issues of the day. So, Hugo, uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, thanks, Bradley. Good to, good to be here. Let me, um, let me give viewers a little bit of a heads up. We're going we're gonna to be talking about offices mostly, the return to the office, but also more broadly about office culture. It's, it's something that obviously a lot of people have been talking about. It. We've been talking about it. I know Bradley's been talking about it with some of his colleagues and some of the people who work for him. Um, but we're going to start. We're going to, that's going to be the bulk of the conversation today. But we're going to start with two kind of Washington-oriented things that I want to get Bradley's view on. Um, the, the number one thing is the – I like this term, the so-called mod squad. I know there are some family issues in play here, but – if you would, can you describe what's happening as you understand it? There's a group of eight, I believe, eight or nine um, moderate House Democrats who have said to Pelosi, we don't want to start moving the $3.5 trillion spending bill until we pass the infrastructure bill that the Senate has already passed. And uh, it happens to be that the leader of the mod squad is my brother-in-law, my sister's husband, Josh Gottheimer. So I've been, uh, you know, somewhat involved in, in this and just trying to talk to Josh. And but Josh is a congressman from from New Jersey. Josh, no, sorry, Josh is a congressman from New Jersey, Northern New Jersey. Barry, he is the founder and one of the two chairs of something called the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is one of the only remaining bipartisan organizations in all of Congress. Um, and Josh it has been, on one hand, a very successful congressman because um, he's been able to reach across the aisle and, and work with Republicans on different issues and bring people together. On the other hand, um, he is hated by the far left uh, because they don't think that anyone should ever be fraternizing with, with the enemy in their view. And so, in a way, Josh makes them more upset than uh, a conservative Republican would, even though Josh is, is, at the end of the day, if you look at his policy views, still a fairly progressive Democrat. So tell us a little bit what's going on and, and how you see it playing out according to your, you know, your view of Washington generally. Yeah, without betraying any confidences. Um, so Josh and his colleagues sent a letter to Pelosi saying uh, the Senate passed the infrastructure bill. There's, you know, uh, almost a trillion dollars and, and, you know, incredible number of jobs. I don't know if it's hundreds of thousands or millions of jobs at stake here. Um, Let's get the win. Let's get something done. And Pelosi has been resistant to that because she wants to use the infrastructure bill uh, as leverage to get moderate House members to vote for the overall Biden spending plan. And look, she's got uh, a three-seat majority, so she can't really afford to lose uh, many votes. It's 50-50 in the Senate, as we know. And so, you know, getting the spending plan is going to be hard no matter what. Um, but Josh's point, I think, is for four years, Trump talked about an infrastructure bill, never got anything really done with it. Um, Biden has been in office now for eight months, not a lot of accompli tangible accomplishments to point to. Obviously, kind of changing the culture from Trump was, was an accomplishment, but, but, not, but one more of just his existence than anything else. Um, I don't think that Afghanistan is a long-term political problem for Biden, but obviously he is uh, suffering a lot of fallout from it right now. And if, if you believe some of the more recent polls, his approval rating is underwater. And so Josh is taking the view of we have a win set up here. Let's take it and then we'll move on and deal with the infrastructure and deal with the spending plan. And I can be four parts of the spending plan, but um, let's get this win done first. Pelosi got very, very upset about that uh, and has been very actively smearing Josh, attacking Josh, calling him incompetent, calling him unethical. 
um, really going out of her way to, to try to make him look bad. Um, and the thing is, Josh is a smart, tough guy, and he has no real reason to back down here, right? I think he's, he's certainly willing to compromise, but Josh had a successful career in the private sector before becoming a member of Congress. He, he could easily resume that career uh, tomorrow if he wanted to. So he's not one of these politicians that sort of has to stay in office at any cost because this is his way of being relevant and making a living. Uh, he has plenty of options. So I think, you know, the more that Pelosi tries to bully and intimidate him and his, his colleagues, uh, the less likely it is to work. Um, maybe that results in nothing at all moving, um, but but I think that her normal kind of tactics of, you know, her dad was the mayor of Baltimore and that sort of inside Baltimore hardball tactics, which often work for her, um, I think in this case are miscalculated and I think she very well may fail. It does seem that those kinds of tactics can obviously have the, you know, the opposite effect. I mean, it, it causes people to dig in once you've, once you've, said a lot of nasty stuff about people like what you know how, how are they how are they likely to to come back and be like okay now i'm gonna play yeah, nice. if you say a lot of nasty stuff and they fold then it worked right and if anything when people fold and that makes more people even afraid to cross you going forward but yeah when you take your shot at them and at the end of the day okay she, she did what she can do she criticized him she said that he might not get support in a, in a primary from the DCCC or in a general election, although Josh is a incredibly prolific fundraiser, so he, he's going to have plenty of money with or without them. Um, you know, she's done everything she can to attack him other than maybe removing him from his committee assignments or like getting rid of its parking spot or something, which actually I don't <laughs> think he even has a car in Washington. Um, I don't really know what else she can do to him. So if it doesn't work... It's a real problem for her because then she looks weak and that encourages more members to defy her. But if it does work, then he looks really weak. And I think his whole kind of career going forward will be tainted by it. Um, and so, you know, without revealing too many personal conversations, you know, my view has been that Josh is, is doing something based on principle and he should hold his ground. And the worst thing that happens is he decides not to serve in Congress because or he loses the opportunity to do so. Uh, because he wouldn't follow marching orders from a party boss. Uh, there are worse ways to go out than that. Uh, let's talk about, you mentioned uh, Biden's approval rating is sinking, uh, the Afghanistan mess. He's been sort of clobbered in the press for the last week. Uh, when we talked last week, he said, look, the, the, the sort of domestic political situation for him is not that risky. Uh, people don't really care about Afghanistan largely in this country. Um, this, is, this is not a big deal. But is the story starting to shift? Is the ground starting to shift beneath his feet a little bit? Is this starting to be less about Afghanistan, more about sort of broader competency issues, things that like? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, you, so there's two different things. So one is um, I still don't believe that the public really cares about foreign policy or about Afghanistan. I think that if it was the opposite, if we were doing a massive troop surge and it was a really, really dangerous situation where thousands of American lives started being lost, then I think you have a domestic political problem. But going the other way with it and removing the troops, uh, it really is not going to result in it because it's just not what people vote on. So that's not a problem. The competence thing, look, I don't think that this is a competence problem. I think that uh, whenever a president finally made, I would argue, the courageous decision to remove our troops, she or he was going to deal with this kind of fallout. Now, can you go back and find a few things Biden should have said and done differently, or they could have prepped differently or whatever else? Yeah, absolutely. But it's, it's still, by the way, a relatively new crew in the White House and the administration. Um, but overall, I, I think this is more around 
the right uh, seeing an opportunity to paint Biden um, as someone who's old and out of touch and incompetent, and they're using this to try to drive home that narrative. If they succeed in driving home that narrative, that's going to hurt him. It's going to hurt his approval rating. It's going to hurt his effectiveness. And it's going to hurt his ability to run for election in 2024 if he's physically able to do so. Um, so that's where the real risk is. But again, that would argue go ahead and weigh in on behalf of Godheimer and pass the infrastructure bill because got Biden can then spend a month running around the country just doing groundbreaking after groundbreaking and event after event, delivering jobs and delivering money. So it's, it seems like he needs the win now more than ever. Um, we're going to transition then from that to, um, to, to our regularly scheduled program. Um, uh, talking about offices. So, um, you know, as, as uh, you know, in the early parts of the summer, when people were kind of zeroing in on September as this sort of return to the office time, and there was obviously some uncertainty about that, but also some optimism and, and, and hope that things might be, you know, returning to some degree of normal. Um, with the Delta variant, uh, the office sort of restart date, as it were, has been kind of pushed back some. Uh, the, a lot of those old, uh, a lot of the things that's felt really powerful in the early days of the pandemic now feel kind of powerful again. Uh, there's some fear factor in terms of the office. There's a lot of questions, you know, what kind of habits and routines people are going to fall into. So we're going to talk about that. And we're going to start uh, just with your company, because I think it's an interesting way to talk about it. I mean, you have what about do you have 50 people in the New York office about? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So give or take. Um, so, so I'm curious what your what your strategy is for that's the bulk of your of your employees. You have people spread around the country, but what what's the what's the office policy at Tusk? Yeah, so we have taken the policy of you have to be vaccinated um, if you have a specific medical reason or religious reason as to why you can't be vaccinated. Um, then you can come to me or our chief of staff Megan Collins, our general counsel Marla Tusk, uh, and have a conversation about it. And I'm sure we would try to be as accommodating as possible. Um, but with that said, to my knowledge, no one has come to any of the three of us. Uh, with concerns on either end. I think everyone is vaccinated. Um, but the real question is, is not so much to vaccinate or, or not, or to demand vaccination or not. It's to reopen during the Delta variant, right? So pre kind of Delta surge, our plan, I think, like a lot of businesses, was to reopen the day after Labor Day. In fact, we're doing construction in the New York office right now to try to anticipate what a post-COVID workforce would want. So more conference rooms, rather than everyone just having their fixed desk, you just come grab a desk when, when you need one, flexible policies. And I think as a business, we're fairly well equipped to make this sort of shift, but it did assume that people would at least be able to start returning to the office on a regular basis uh, post Labor Day if they wanted to. And I think now we're having some internal discussions um, about whether or not that's a good idea because breakthrough COVID sounds like a scary thing for a lot of people. And um, my team has now spent the last 18 months, whether it's the venture capital side or the consulting side or the gaming side or tele-religion or the foundation or content or anything else, working really productively and efficiently uh, from home or wherever they've been. And so uh, I don't see any reason to potentially risk their safety and health so I think that the odds of us fully reopening right after Labor Day are not pretty low. When you polled your, your staff about what they wanted to use the office for, was there anything that surprised you or, or maybe you just characterized what, what, some of the, uh, what some of the basic findings were? Yeah, look, I know there's a shortage of softball space in Manhattan, but I still think using our office as an auxiliary field is inappropriate. Um, <laughs> uh, no, look, the reality is it, it, what was surprising was how unsurprising the results 
uh, were when we surveyed people and, and, and talked to them. Um, I, I think that there are people who said, I really need to come to the office every day. I really like being in the office every day. Um, please provide an environment for me. And look, once we fully reopen, if people want to come in five days a week, no problem. We're happy to have them. Um, but there are a lot of other people who said, I, I like a hybrid schedule. Nobody said, I never want to come in. And maybe you just would be stupid to say that. But <laughs> but what what people said was, this has worked pretty well for me. And I see a world where maybe it makes sense to be with the colleagues on my team in whatever company of ours you're working at on Tuesdays and Thursdays or whatever it is, or have external meetings, you know, some in the, our office, some other people's offices on Wednesday or whatever. But I could easily see a world where of the 50 people who regularly work out of the New York office, even once things are up and running, you know, a quarter show up on a Friday. Um, and again, for as long as the work is getting done, I, I really don't care. How much time do you personally plan to be in the office? Has that changed? Do you know? What do you no, know? A, a lot. Um, simply, I found, and keep my, my kids are 15 and 12, so they're going to be starting in a few weeks, 10th and 7th grades. Um, I found the whole remote school work from home combination to be pretty difficult. Um, because of the nature of my wife's work where she's an academic and she's constantly researching and writing articles and books and things like that, she needed solitude more than I did. So I was generally home with the kids. Um, and you know, they were both, by the way, great, but it was still hard, right? It was distracting. I got a lot of work to do um, and I'd like to be able to focus on it. So um, I, I think as soon as it's safe to be in the office again, I'm gonna be there or quite frankly, once the construction is done, if no one's there, I may still just start going every day because it, I do pay the rent and it is across the street from my apartment. Do you think as the head of the office that gives you the right to hog a big conference room? Is that is that part of what you get to do? So we have an open seating plan normally and I just sit at a cubicle, not one of cubicles, there's a desk in the middle of the room like everybody else. Um, during the period before construction but, but after vaccination, um, a few people came in and sat in different conference rooms just to sort of give themselves some physical space, and I, I did that as well. But uh, my stuff has since been removed from that conference room. <laughs> um, all right, just crystal balled, if you had to guess, what percentage of the daily Manhattan office population will be permanently reduced by remote work? 20 percent? 30 percent? 30. 30. 30. 30. 30. Yeah. Now, look, I'm extrapolating my business to everyone's business and that that may not be a fair extrapolation but you know and i've been talking about this for for a, a while now which is you know i know new york city is having a little bit of a recovery um and that real estate market is doing really well um and that we we grew a little bit in the census data that came out recently but i'm still really worried about the city's long-term ability to survive uh, the, the post-work effects of COVID, because if 30% fewer people every day show up at their office in Midtown or Lower Manhattan or Union Square where we are or anywhere else, it's just 30% less revenue for everyone around them, right? For the Blue Bottle downstairs from us, from the Bravo Pizza down the block, from the CVS down the block, and everyone else, they rely on that traffic. That's their customer base. And if you, if you tell every business you're going to have a 30% hit to revenue, um, that can be pretty devastating, especially for low margin businesses like restaurants. And so um, I still think we're going to have a real problem where 
Um, you're not going to have the kind of critical mass and volume in places like Midtown and Lower Manhattan to support the kind of retail and food and hospitality that we used to have. And then I think without that food and hospitality and retail, it becomes a vicious cycle where if it's not as convenient to come to the office and places that you enjoy going to around the office are no longer open and your employer is saying to you, I don't really care where you are, just get your work done, um, you're going to choose to be at home more and more. Um, and that's going to then make that Midtown or, or Lower Manhattan environment less and less appealing and attractive. Now, look, maybe that inures to the benefit of neighborhoods in Brooklyn or Queens where people now choose to work from home. And so they're having pizza out uh, in Cobble Hill, you know, in, instead of on 53rd Street or whatever it is. Um, and maybe it's good for the suburbs. But, but I do think that uh, New York City's ability to recover from the pandemic fully is still dependent on a pretty robust return to the office. And I don't think we're going to get that. Did uh, so? COVID sort of accelerated a population move from the cities to the suburbs. Does that trend continue when sort of corporate office policies solidify? In your view, it's a good question. Um, I think that trend is more likely driven by um, quality of life, crime, and schooling in cities, especially a city like New York, than by COVID policies specifically. But I think what will happen is. Let's say there's a 34-year-old who works for me who lives in, in Brooklyn, right? And they just got married. They're having a kid. Um, so 30 years ago, that person would have automatically moved to the suburbs at a certain point because they would have felt that the city wasn't a safe environment for their kids and they would have wanted better public schools to access and everything else. That has changed a lot. Um, you know, is since kind of the mid-'90s to a point now where the city's populations we saw in the recent census data actually grew. Um, but if you're that 34-year-old and you're newly married and you're pregnant or your spouse is pregnant, and now not only does the city feel dirty again and unsafe and the schools have gotten worse and worse, but your boss doesn't even really care where you are, you put all that together, yeah, I think there's going to be an incentive to move to um, other cities, to move to the suburbs. And so I, that trend can be reversed if the city can deliver a high value product to its citizens. Um, but you know, if we're willing to tolerate uh, really high crime and not willing to lock up people who commit violent crimes and willing to tolerate you know, mental illness on the streets and homelessness on the streets and public defecation on the streets, New York becomes a less and less attractive place to live um, and it's gonna suffer for that. Let's talk a little bit about office culture as a thing, because we've had a few discussions offline about this. Um, what is something? Try to try to try to isolate it to one thing if you can. But what is something irreplaceably good about office culture? So the the hardest thing for us has been onboarding and training new employees. Uh, you know, we have continued to uh, hire people during the pandemic. Um, there are people now that I've never even met who work for us um, because they either are in one of our other offices and I haven't traveled around the country to our other offices in a long time or because uh, they're in the New York office but physically haven't had any you know, opportunity to be there. And I think that while we you know, are working really hard and, and Megan and her team are really pushing hard to still make sure everyone has a good onboarding experience, learning you know, our culture, I like to think, is unique. Um, our approach to work, I like to think, is unique. Um, and I don't think it's intuitive to people. I think you have to see it and live it and watch the other 50 people around you behaving in a similar way for it to become the norm. And expecting those people to be able to sort of learn all of this and behave this way 
through osmosis is really, really hard. So to me, that's been the hardest part. Now, with that said, I'm not in some ways well qualified to answer the question because I'm the boss, which means I'm not really part of the office culture in many ways. Like if everyone's sitting around gossiping about something and I come over, it's not fun anymore, right? Just like when we had office social events, I always went, chatted with everyone and I got out because I understood that it was more relaxing for everyone if I wasn't there than if I was there, right? So in some ways, um, there's probably a lot of stuff that, that is important for office culture that happens that I just don't see. Um, but, but at least for my own purposes, it's been training. So, um, what's a, what's a, you can, you can talk, uh, you can answer this question, not just in terms of like your, your, you know, experience as a boss, but taking in your work history, including times when you weren't the boss, what, what's something that's bad about office culture? I mean, there's the inefficiency of commuting, right? So I live, as we I think I've mentioned on other podcasts across the street from the office. And that's, that's very deliberate, um, because, uh, I just don't want to have to spend any time whatsoever uh, on a commute. But look, I am lucky in that uh, I have the financial wherewithal to live where I want to live. Um, and because it's my company, I, I put the office across the street from our apartment. Um, most people have to commute somewhere. Now, if it's a nice 15 minute walk, that's probably good to clear your head and a little bit of get you some more steps in. Um, but if you're spending 30, 40 minutes, an hour each way uh, commuting, if not more, um, you know, my sister lives in, in New Jersey, uh, where her husband is a member of Congress that we discussed uh, earlier on in the, in the show. Um, takes her an hour and a half each way. Now, she was only coming in twice a week, even before COVID, for that very reason. But it's not an efficient use of her time. So, one, I, th I think commuting is obviously a really inefficient thing for um, a lot of people. So that's, that's number one. And then n number two... You know, an office environment is a social environment in some ways, and there are people who really thrive on that, um, and it works really well for them, but there are people who are either really shy or um, they just, you know, want to do their work and everyone to leave them alone. And so, you know, there are people that you've heard of that social distancing actually is preferable for them, um, and I can understand why. Do you think if people spend less time in the office, they might need other kinds of social outlets? I mean, I, I think particularly in New York where people's, jobs are really their lives to a greater extent than other places, they depend on the, the sort of like social life of offices. So do you think this creates an opportunity for another kind of um, socialization? I mean, I wonder if, what that would yeah, be. Yeah, I mean, you can both physical and digital, right? So the, the physical would be if people are working from home two or three days a week, what replaces it? Is it happy hours? Are they going axe throwing? Um, is there, you know, are, are there still work social? Have you been axe throwing ever, by the way? I have. I've been twice. I tried to go with you. Didn't I try to go with you once? And it was closed. Oh, we did try to go yeah. once after we got rained out of a we game. We rained out of a Mets game, tried to go axe throwing. That wasn't open. We tried to go bowling. That wasn't open. And then we ended up at a restaurant. And then we found that cool hot sauce uh, store in Williamsburg, which I've been that, back to. I wonder if that survived COVID. It probably, probably did. I was there. Charlie and I were there in Harper during COVID, but late, late enough that you were like occasionally going out and about. So it was around then. Uh, it's called Heatnist, by the way, for anyone who's interested. So tons of different good hot sauces. Um, so, but yeah, I've been actually throwing a couple of times. You think that could be a big thing? So axe throwing could really, could really, could really. Well, it has some downsides to it, right? And so I was, you know, a little surprised by the safety measures or, or 
lack thereof. There were, I remember there were only three rules. One was no open-toed shoes because the axes will often hit the target and then bounce back at you right. uh, and could chop off your toes. You know, So that's number one. Two, um, they only serve wine and beer because there were people getting too drunk and throwing axes. And obviously, you know, no matter how much wine or beer you drink, you can't really get that drunk from it. So, um, so they had a, a limited bar selection, um, but in order to enhance safety. And third, I thought this was the most important rule of all, which is never ever walk in front of someone while they're throwing an ax. Uh, and I think as long as we can all agree on those rules, you know, we'll keep most fatalities. Um, but I, you know, was there once, and our friend Amber um, was was holding an axe. You know, you kind of hold up. I, the listeners can't see me, but both of my hands are above my head. You throw it kind of above your head and let it fly. And I realized I was standing four feet behind her, but directly behind her. And if she had let go at any other point in the thing, I would have been decapitated. And so I stepped to the side. Um, but I, I do think that axe throwing on one hand uh, has potential to become a, a new way that people around the office congregate. On the other hand, it could lead to more dismemberment um, th than we normally see. I, see, I think there is an opportunity for like uh, new kinds of social outlets because I, I, it, it's always struck me as pretty, pretty, I don't know if sad's the right word, but the extent to which socialization in New York City is built around two main things, offices and bars. And I feel like that's a pretty limited menu of things. And those are the two main aspects of, of people's, you know, sort of social lives, you know, when they're not at home. They're in the office, they're at a bar. Uh, I guess the yeah. gym is the other big one. And I, yeah. I feel like there's an opportunity for many more things. But I'm not sure how often anybody wants to go axe throwing. So you've been twice. Probably I, the maximum tolerance I've heard is like four times a week. <laughs> that's as much uh, yeah. as someone can handle like racquetball yeah. four times a week axe throwing um terrible, terrible for your knees if you do, do it you do you imagine any like uh, this is both i mean we could say this locally or 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 even nationally are there any political effects do you think of a of a larger work from home population could you see that you know I mean, I, one thing I would think off the bat is it might mean that it'd be even harder to get money for mass transit if people aren't taking the train and the subway to work or the bus or whatever. I think they're going to be a lot less inclined to 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 support it. But but I'm curious what what other possible if, if this is a big. Yeah, I mean, look, it certainly means, uh, number one, and we're talking about New York, but this could be true in, in a bunch of different cities if the office population is considerably reduced and therefore the restaurant bar retail population is considerably reduced with it you start to see a decline in tax revenue um, and you start to see fewer and fewer people on the street which tends to lead to increases in crime and quality of life violations which tends to drive more people away um, and that same vicious cycle that cities like new york fell prey to in the, in the 70s where we couldn't really, we didn't have enough tax revenue, we couldn't afford our bills, couldn't afford to keep the city safe, and it just got worse and worse. I think that risk still exists for a lot of cities. I think you're already seeing it to a certain extent in, in Los Angeles and New York. Um, and I know there are some cities like Austin, and, and we've talked about this in the podcast before, and, and Miami, that have actually benefited from the pandemic because uh, people have used COVID as an excuse to move to the uh, a much lower tax jurisdiction. Um, but um, overall, yeah, I think it could set in motion, you know, in some ways, the decline of U.S. cities. Now, not everyone agrees with this. My, my partner at the fund, Jordan, uh, strongly disagrees with this this view. Uh, we can have Mont talk about it. And I was with um, a friend of ours yesterday, briefly, uh, Henry, 
who's a really, really successful real estate uh, broker in New York, and he was telling me that 2021 is the best year uh, they've ever had. So maybe the data points in the other direction, but it still seems to me that uh, fewer people means less vitality, means less revenue, which means less funding to take care of basic quality of life issues, which then means more problems, which then just makes it worse and worse. Well, I think two things. I think one, I think what you will see is a is a stronger shift of the sort of culture of New York from Manhattan to Brooklyn, which has been happening for 20, 25 years, but but I think will likely accelerate and some of those neighborhoods will get even stronger and more attractive. Um, and, I, and I suspect, you know, you look at like the, the Dumbo area, which is a, you know, an office district in some ways, I, I, I suspect that will really flourish. It's closer to, to where people want to work, where people, a lot of people live. It's, it's got sort of more amenities and, and more of a fun kind of uh, aspect than, you know, Midtown Manhattan. Um, I, mean, that, that, I mean, that's the problem. Midtown is awful. Yeah. I mean, you live in Manhattan. Do you ever go to Midtown voluntarily? No, no, I hate it. Uh, in fact, when, once I stopped going to Midtown, I, I felt much better about living in New York City, period. Um, but it's a weird thing, right? I mean, the, for since at least the 1920s, Manhattan and New York City generally has been defined by tall buildings. I mean, the greatest fortunes made in, in New York City are, are, are all these gigantic buildings in the, in the, on the lower part of the island and the middle of the island. And what if those aren't worth that much? What, what does that even mean? I mean, I, I, I could see the neighborhoods continuing to flourish. I could see Henry, who's, I mean, he does residential real estate. I, I don't see, you know, I don't see Greenwich Village being any less appealing to live in. Um, but I do wonder what, you know. Well, here's, here's, here's what, what the ancillary impact would be, right? So um, my predictions of a 30% smaller daily in-person workforce are true. And ultimately, that leads to Midtown and Lower Manhattan being less attractive places to, to work. Um, that ultimately leads to a reduction long term in commercial real estate rents because, you know, the demand is what drives the price. Um, if that happens, you have fewer people making fortunes in real estate. And while it's hard to feel sympathy for kind of, you know, real estate barons, um, they do pay a lot of taxes. Um, their entire business is is dependent on the city itself. So unlike, say, finance or other sectors where they could get up and move to Florida or wherever else, they're, they're stuck here, which is actually good for the city. So the more they hurt, the, the arguably the worse it is. Um, and then those fewer taxes sort of lead to less money for police and, and sanitation and things like that, which just makes the city worse overall. And, you know, Greenwich Village is lovely, but it's lovely because it's incredibly wealthy. It's incredibly wealthy because... I mean, I wouldn't say it's lovely because it's incredibly wealthy. It's it's lovely because it's the the most architecturally interesting part of the city, and and it was it was lovely it was lovely in the nineteen eighties when it wasn't incredibly wealthy. Yeah, but you walk around and all the cute little shops and stores. I hate the cute little shops. That's all. That's all a function of wealth. Um, and if the real estate industry is significantly less wealthy, some of that will splash back onto neighborhoods like Greenwich Village. All right, Bradley, we're coming up on the half hour mark. I think we've blown past it. So even though we have many more questions to talk about the office, we'll get to them later on in the fall as, as some of these things start to play out a little bit and we, we get to see uh, where things are really headed. And I just wanted to say that next week on our usual half hour that we do on – that comes out on Tuesdays, we record on Mondays, we're going to have the new manager of the bookstore of P&T Knitwear is joining us. Julie's going to join us to talk about um, some of what she's been up to and also – do a little bit of a preview of, of what you should read 
um, for that last week of the summer um, when you've got to get that one book in. She's going to have some, some suggestions for us. Yep, and all the all the books to start reading in September that are coming out, which she's excited about. So yeah, I, th I think everyone's going to enjoy that one. And then two final notes to the listeners. Uh, again, if you haven't filled out that listener survey, we'd still really appreciate it. Just go to firewall.media. Um, and if you get a chance to rate and review us. Firewall.media uh, backslash yeah. survey is the best way to if find it. If you want to go directly to the survey. <laughs> right. Wait, what so, was the second um, anyway, if, if I said if you were, oh, uh, rate and review us. Because oh, I'm supposed right, to right. say that every episode and I say it like one out of six. So, but I, I remember to say it this time. So, so please, if you like the show, uh, please, please give us a good rating. Um, and that's it. Thank you uh, to everyone for listening. Hugo, thanks for the questions and I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.